a gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery. And it's brought to you by our friends at knowyourscript.org. Head on over there and check them out, uh, whether it's to talk to a loved one, yourself, or your doctors. They've got a lot of information there about the opioid epidemic and, uh, you know, the purpose that opioids and have in our society, Dr. Matt. They do have a purpose, and, you know, they're still out there, and they, when they're used appropriately, they're helpful. But, man, they, they cause so, so many troubles. So if you educate yourself... Uh, you're going to navigate that world more successfully for you and your family. And where do you go to educate yourself? At knowyourscript.org. There you go. Hey, you know, I, I was I had this thing I was going to talk to you about, but then we just came up with this. And I thought, well, let's go down this road for a bit and see what it is. Okay. We've had a lot of people who have sat down in this podcast and talked about uh, their uh, entrance into substance abuse through a legal prescription. Through a legal, yeah, not illegal. Yeah, illegal. Right. Yeah, like a prescribed prescription. Doctor gives you a prescription, you go fill it at the Walgreens. And I remember as a kid, and you know, I've had hips replacement, I've had broken bones. I mean, I, I've, I've spent a lot of time in the doctor's yes, office. Yes, you have. And every time they've, I've been a prescribed a prescription. I just took it. <laughs> yeah. And filled it. Didn't, and didn't ask any questions. Didn't ask any questions. Right. You know, because I, you know, and then went to the pharmacy. Got it. They go, do you have any questions? Nope. And just took Goes off. Goes in my mouth, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. You know what I mean? I was like, yeah. I mean, I know this. And right. I think a little of that's ego. Uh, it's also kind of if you don't know that you should ask a question. Right. Like, like I think sometimes they're, obviously they're trying to be helpful when they say, do you have any questions? But it also sort of puts you in this weird, que- like, am I a dummy? Do I have questions? Like, it just goes in your mouth. Or are they just saying it like, you know? have a good day? Is this yeah. just something that they were right. taught when they got the job? Yeah. It's like, and, and don't forget to see if they to got any honest, questions. To be honest, a lot of uh, pharmacies nowadays train their people to give you at least some information and then say, do you have any additional questions? Nah. Because so many people are hesitant to ask any questions because we might feel embarrassed that we have a question. We may not know what questions to ask because it seems so like, well, I'm just doing what the doctor told me. So why would I ask a question? Mm -hmm. And especially with controlled substances like opioids um, and the epidemic that they've caused, uh, I think a lot of pharmacies now from what I've been told, at least at the university of Utah and other places where we have clinical pharmacists that interact a little bit more with the patients, um, they do a little bit of just telling you whether you ask or not. Remember, this is how you take this, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. Do you have any additional questions or concerns? And, you know, I think the industry as a whole has come a long way. Oh, for sure. You know, and, 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 and doing some good things. Do we need to go a lot further? Heck yes. Sure. We do. And so go over to knowyourscript.org. They got a lot of information. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good place to go. All right, where is it? It's on the web, the World Wide Web. No, no, where is it? The World Wide Web? no. My birthday present. Your birthday pre- Oh, dude, did I forget your birthday? You forgot my birthday? It's my birthday. Today? Josh was going to remind me. Uh, I mean, I thought Leslie would text you and you'd have some Swedish fish. For- well, Leslie and I do text a lot late at night. But but, but nothing? <laughs> no, she didn't tell me. What? When was your birthday? Well, it's January 30th. Well, so it's not your birthday yet. Quit putting that pressure on me. Well, I know, but this is going to come out on oh, Tuesday. We have to so- pretend. Yes. yes. You know what I mean? Missed your birthday. Man, you just blew the illusion. Dang it. Because I had this big thing thought because birthday is a perfect time for self-reflection. I was going to give you a hug. Well, I appreciate that. Okay. I'll get it afterwards, but I'm right. trying to stay six feet away. Okay, yeah. Um, but it's a time for self-reflection, you know. Okay. Now, what birthday is this? Are you going to tell everybody or are you one of those guys? Can't own it. 60. <laughs> what am I, Dr. Matt? No, I'm 48. <laughs> 48. 48 years old. That's right. And I remember being 10 years old and my dad saying, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? My answer was simple. I knew it. Yeah? I wanted to be a lawyer who drives a diesel. (laughs) 
that's what I always wanted to be. I wanted to be a lawyer that drove a hey, diesel. You needed his, bigger dreams at Ted, buddy. No, I wanted to be a lawyer. That drove a diesel truck? Yeah. Like and that the was Mack just, trucks? Yeah, that was just my everyday car. <laughs> my dad was like, you want to drive a diesel ever? I was like, yep. yep. I'm going to be the lawyer that drives a diesel. That I get. The lawyer part, I, that I wanted to be a lawyer. I love right. to argue. I, I just thought it was cool. Yeah. And... Who's going to argue with the guy who drives a diesel truck every day? And I, that's what I wanted. Yeah. And here I'm 48. Yeah. I'm a DJ. I'm a podcaster. And I'm a marketer for a title company. And you drive a Prius. And no, no, I drive a mom's car with a dad's bod. <laughs> okay. But that's okay. But it just, I was thinking about it on the way down here because that's where I do most of my thinking for the podcast is on the drive down. Yeah. We don't want to overdo it. Uh uh-uh. In 48 years, I've had some good years. I've had some great years. And I've had some awesome years. Also, in that same really, amount of time. Good, great, awesome. Okay. Yep, I've had bad. Mm-hmm. I've had very bad. But I can tell you with 100% honesty, I have learned more about myself and who I am and what I want to be in those bad years. Explain. The good years were, were cool. And I, I learned I could do things that I didn't know I could. And that'd be being on TV and being a public persona and doing all those other things. But it felt not authentic, if I can use your word. You know what I mean? It was like, I was lucky to have these. And don't get me wrong, I was lucky to have the job and the career that I had. You had some real fun times. Yeah. Like it was fun to to be kind of a celebrity and and go places with cool people and do fun stuff. And it, it was amazing. And I remember when I first got into the industry, my mom says, don't do it. And I go, why? And she goes, it's really tough and it doesn't pay that well. Mm-hmm. And I took that as a challenge. I said, you know what? I'm going to get into that. Yeah. And it, and it paid decent and it paid good. Um, but I am that type of person. If you tell me I can't do hard, something. Yeah. I don't think people really know. You how think hard about it. it. When I was doing a feature reporter here in the state of Utah, there was only one other guy in the state that had my job. And I everywhere I'd go, people would say, I want your job. Your I was job's... gonna say, but there are there are ten thousand guys who wanted it. Who wanted that yeah. job. It's like, how did you get that job? What did you do to get that job? It's an amazing job. You could just go tour the state, have fun, and, and that's your job. I want that job. Sure. And there was only two of those jobs in the state. Yeah. Now there's only one of those jobs in the state because they don't do what I do on the other stations anymore. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Okay. So there's only one guy who gets that job. Yeah. And, and that was awesome, and that was amazing, and I really loved it, and I figured the thing I learned from that is that I can do things if I put my mind to it. Agreed. But I said it, it felt unauthentic because, I mean, I did, I, a lot of the stuff was authentic, and it was me out there having a good time and doing that, but I felt like it could be taken away from me at any moment. Felt but, tenuous. Tenuous. I mean, it could be taken away, all of a sudden, people didn't like me. Oh, yeah, they can turn on you. Or the powers to be being the corporate America going, no, we're going to go in a different direction. Yeah. So you're only as good as your last show. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a tough thing about entertainment, right? And through my own doing, I lost it all. It wasn't because the public didn't like me. It wasn't because corporate said we're going in a different direction. It's because I couldn't control my demons and I couldn't control myself. Yeah. No, that's a good way to look at it. I can't blame anybody else for my situation other than me. So there I am graduating from rehab. I don't have a job. I don't know where I'm going. I've got alimony. I've got child support. I've got three kids. I've got a house payment. And I got to figure out what am I going to do? How am I going to make this work? I've never been sober in 35 years. And you'd never been without a job since you were, what, 15, 16? Yeah. Yeah. I started out selling cotton candy to rodeos. Cotton candy, get your cotton candy. And from yeah, that, that on, pretty good. I never left. Yeah. And I always had a job. And so there I am. What was I, 45 at the time. Mm-hmm. Had a great amount of success behind me. Did a lot of cool stuff. Where am I going to go from here? What am I going to do? Well, the part of the problem is you couldn't just jump back into those same types of jobs because nobody wanted you anymore. No. You were a liability. I didn't have a job. I didn't have a car. I didn't have a license. I had family. I had a girlfriend, and I had my kids, and they believed in me. And a friend. And a friend. Yes. And I had to figure out who I was and what I wanted to be. 
And I knew that this was my story and I was the author. So I knew I had some blank pages ahead of me. Let's let's figure out what I can do. And by the graces of God, uh, good friends and family, I started getting jobs. We did this podcast. Things started to get better. But what I learned is that I can do hard things. Yep. That I can do that and that I am the author of my story. For the longest time, I thought the author of my story was everybody else. I thought it was the general public. I thought it was my job. I thought it was my bosses. I thought it was my wife. I, and I was like, no, I'm control of me and my happiness. And if it makes sense to me, then I'll do it. If it doesn't, I'm not going to do it. Why do you think you learned that lesson through the hard things and not the easier things? Why, why did the hard things help you learn that lesson? Because, I mean, technically, I guess you could have learned that lesson when – when you were on top of the world. Yeah, but I, I don't know. I don't know why my brain works that way. I can tell you the bad things I learned during the good years. Yeah. Cockiness. Um, I always thought everything worked out for me. Everything yeah. came easy. You know what I mean? I was never really tried. It just was happening. Yeah. It was yeah. it was like that Seinfeld episode where he throws 20 bucks out the window and reaches in his pocket and there's 20 <laughs> Even bucks. Even Steven. Yeah, I was like, I, I, I don't know how this... I, I, there was a time... When and I, I think a lot of our listeners, local listeners at least, they'll know this. There was a time where Casey Scott was kind of everywhere. Yeah, your your face, your voice, people knew you really well. You were kind of everywhere, and and I think that was the time in your life you're talking about where you're like everything just clicks. Yeah, and it just seemed to work. Mm-hmm. And but that kind of is a represent representation of my disease and substance abuse. Everything works. Until it doesn't. Until it doesn't, yep. And we talked about this off there with our guest, Sam, who we're going to introduce you in just a second. Um, everything seemed to work. And I negotiated my sobriety, and there was times that I put together good years, bad years, good months, bad months, bad weeks, good weeks. And it just would, it, we just kind of was oh. in this holding pattern. Mm-hmm. But when it started to unravel, it unraveled quick. <laughs> yeah, it sure did. I mean, you know what I mean? And, I don't mean to laugh. It's just like that's a true principle. Like when things fall apart, they fall apart fast. Yeah. And you're like – but the reality was it, it seemed to fall apart fast for me. But my friends and family are like, no, we saw this yeah. coming. <laughs> you know? Like, we, as a matter of fact, we had conversations. But you sat there bull-faced and told me it's okay. Yeah. Because that's where the cockiness came in. Yeah. Everything seems to work out for me. I'll yeah. be all right. Yeah. I'm going to figure this out. So let me make a can – I, can I answer the question I asked you? Yes. Or make at least a suggestion? Yeah. So my question was, why did you learn that lesson from the hard times and not the easier times? And I think part of the answer, because first of all, that's true for everybody, pretty much across the board, un, because of self-reflection. When things are going well, we're sort of celebrating life. Mm-hmm. There doesn't feel like much of a need to self-reflect. You know, we're just enjoying it. People are happy to see us. We're happy to see them. Checks are getting cashed. Everything's going well. We're having fun. And even the the things that are starting to not go well, sort of we become delusional about that. We They're don't easy to write look off. at it. We don't dig deep. We don't look inside. There's no real need to self-reflect because everything's going so well. When things fall apart, we hit rock bottom, we're, you know, riding our daughter's bike with a basket to the grocery store to try to get groceries. We don't have jobs. All those stories that you've relayed, which I think is extremely authentic to to our listeners. That's a time where you have to be like, I've got blank pages. I don't know what to do. Like, I've got to figure something out. And the self-reflection starts. So my challenge to people, you don't have to wait until things go bad in order to do self-reflection. And the analogy I like is is like if you go to your favorite restaurant and they bring out this new dessert and it's delicious and it's amazing. Most of us would probably just eat the dessert, talk about it, enjoy it, go home, right? Mm -hmm. But you could also figure out what's in it. You could dig deep into the good stuff there and be like, what am I doing that's making this work? You know, and so I can go home and make it every day if I want. The message of the story is not to eat dessert every day, but the message is understand the good stuff. You can be self-reflective. And you'd be more likely to catch the things that are starting to go bad before they really crash if you do that. So, for example, we should enjoy the good times. We should celebrate them. But at the same time, we should be asking ourselves, why is this happening? What am I doing? What are other people in my environment doing that's helping my life be so good right now? Because I want to keep doing that. And when I dig deep into that, I might say, I'm also maybe feeling a little lousy every morning because I drank so much the night before. 
that seems like it's not part of that formula of success. What am I going to do about that? And you can start to catch whatever it is. It doesn't have to be drugs and alcohol. It could be anything. You could catch those things early. But we all have this like delusional mindset of when we're just going to enjoy the good times and not try to understand them. So you, you don't have to wait till you crash, but that's usually when most of us do our best self-reflection is at the bottom. Man, I'm so lucky to have you as a friend. Well, I'm lucky to have you as a friend. I wouldn't get to sit here and do this with you uh, if you didn't invite me on the show. So I appreciate that. And, but you say what I'm thinking. Well, you're an awesome guy, and I think that people relate well to you. And I think when you're authentic, that draws people in. And you and I both know that a lot of people have done the self-reflection because of our show. And I hope we're helping catch that self-reflection before people crash. And that's why we started this podcast. We're going to want you to stick around. We have Sam Wellman coming up. He's our guest today. He's going to talk about his self-reflection and his road to recovery and where it all began. You're listening to Project Recovery right here on KSL. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist. Our guest today is Sam Wellman. And off the air, I just asked him, how long have you been sober? And he answered in uh, a motherly mom. way. Yes, uh, like a new mom. Because like when you're in recovery, uh, the first two years, you count them in months. And just like <laughs> you do with your kids, you're yeah. like, how old is he? He's nine and a half months. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so you do that in recovery. How sober are you? Well, I'm 12 and a half months, and everything's good. That's a good point. I never, you know, I never but, put that together. But you said 22 months. Yep. And yeah. um, where did your road to addiction begin? Wow, that's uh, it's, that was a it's pretty a, deep. It's side. a hard. Well, it's a hard question to to answer, right? Because like you, you, I could I could go as far back as I wanted to and try to pinpoint what quote unquote went wrong, right? And what what started to turn me away from healthy ways to deal with the problems that ultimately I dealt with in an unhealthy way, right? But I think I think I could probably start you right around um, my first year of college, 19 years old. I I was at Colorado State University and um, didn't really have any idea what I wanted to do. Let me ask you, was that considered a party school? Why did you pick Colorado? Well, so I was living here at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to high school in Park City and I had lived in Denver for a while. I knew I wanted to go back to Colorado and it was a prominent enough state school with enough size, but wasn't very costly. So it kind of just like fit this bill. And I didn't realize that I was moving to Fort Collins, I'd never been there, but it's like this beautiful, small town, super tight knit community. And it was, it was an incredible place to be. If only I could take off the blinders and see it. I landed there at 19 years old and I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I didn't want to disappoint anybody, which I thought was possible. Right. And I, I met a group of friends in my dorm freshman year who who I learned from that you can drink and do drugs more than once a week or more than once every couple of weeks that like three days a week you can party it up. Right. And that was a new concept to me. I had smoked weed in high school and I had drank in high school and, um, but that was only if you could get it, yeah, score yeah, yeah, yeah. it, right. special occasion. Yeah. Parents are out of town. Yeah. We're going on a trip right. or whatever. And so it was more sporadic back then. Right. And now it's like, 
we have one one person with a fake ID, and we live in a state where marijuana is legal for people who have a fake ID, right? Mm-hmm. So we have unlimited access to. I think things. the fake ID makes it illegal still, but I hear what you're saying. <laughs> I, I got you. I got you. I'm putting myself. I'm. I'm. Uh, I'm you, doing method acting for the 19 year old, right? Who, I like it. Who, right? I yeah. Like so, it, yeah. But you know, the the thing is, before we get into that, is I mean, there's there's a group of seniors right now that one of their big decisions on which college to go is which one is a party school. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You, you know, I mean, it, it's kind of the rite of passage. I mean, the 80s turned out nothing but movies about that. Right. You know, and, and that was celebrated. It was like, you know, ASU is the number one party school. In the, you know, okay. There are a lot of, uh, a lot of kids do make that decision on how far away from home can I go yep. and is it a party school? Mm-hmm. But you said you're 19 and you got a buddy with a fake ID yeah. and you're now finding out that you can so party. lack of supervision and access. Right, yeah. It, and those are two things really it was as simple you as didn't that. have growing up in Park City all the time. Yeah. It was, hard to, it was hard to be unsupervised and it was hard to have access. But now you find yourself with both all the time. Right. And I, and I didn't know how to be a person and how to find interesting things to do, right? So what are you going to do? You're, you're going to get messed up all the time, right? So um, you know. that that's a common story. Like we hear that a lot and I hear that in my office a lot. Boredom leads to use. Mm-hmm. Sure. Like if you don't have, like if you're not passionate about something that you want to spend all your free time doing and you, you are kind of like, I think most people are, are not super passionate about something. I think most people have like they could be interested in almost anything. Therefore, they don't really have a lot that they spend their free time doing. And when you're young and you've got the energy, then that can get you into some hot water. Look at it this way. When when you're a young kid and people say we're going to go do something, it's normally in the college town like that because I was part of it. It was always followed up and we'll drink. Hey, do you want to go up the canyon? No. We'll go up the canyon and drink? Well, what, yeah. would, what would be the point otherwise, <laughs> yeah. right? You know what I mean? We're going to go on a beautiful drive and, yeah. and yeah. enjoy the sunset and, and have some spiritual experience at 17 years old. Like, no, 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 no. We're, no, we're trying gonna to get, drink. We're going to get 40 miles away from our parents and we're, yeah, yeah. we're going to yeah, be yeah, responsible. Exactly. You know, and exactly. so it was always and drink that made everything seem palatable or fun. Sure. Yeah, you know, no, even you. the mundane. It was like, yeah, cool, man. Want to go sit over at the park? No, and drink? Sure, yes. I'm in. Yeah. Okay, yeah. let's yeah. do yeah. this. Yeah. So yeah, so I, I my, I ended up graduating college, and the way I summarize it is, um, I majored in um, psychology, and I majored in sociology, concentrating in criminology and criminal justice. I loved what I was studying, and I loved. Um, the idea that we can can help people with their thoughts and their behaviors, and I was just very interested in that, um, and, and didn't realize how interested I was in the clinical side of it at that point. But um, I I really I I like to say that I minored in those things and I majored in alcoholism. Like I really I really learned how to be an alcoholic, and and how to I found that solution to my to the gaping hole that was inside of me. Well, I think I took the same courses as you then. Yeah. I mean, I to be honest with you 100%. Yeah. I mean, I was doing the school so I could do the partying. Yeah, and I and I knew exactly the minimum amount of effort I had to put into school and still get good grades and invest all of my other time for the first 3 years in partying, right? With other people. And then eventually my senior year I'm living on my own. I'd gotten a DUI in 2018, in the spring of 2018. Um, so I wasn't driving. And I lived right outside of campus, right across the street from a Walgreens and a liquor store. And I started to isolate and drink on my own every day. Every day. I was terribly anxious. Um, were, I start- you, were you anxious before that stress? I mean, yeah. But I – but but – I had never identified it um, prior to then, right? And and people around me started to describe their their emotion of feeling, and I I, I feel like it's the emotion of feeling excited or nervous, right, as being anxious. And like what I was experiencing was a physiological response to a lack of identity, a lack of purpose, and no sense of of structure in my life, right. I was I had reduced the number of credits I was taking because I didn't need to take that many credits. Um, 
I wasn't working. And get this, I had a little breathalyzer I had to carry around with me. Um, and I would get a ping on my phone. And I had to breathalyze. And I think the only reason I didn't end up in the hospital that year is because every day I had to at least be at zeros at some point. Um, so this, so you weren't driving, but you still had to carry the breathalyzer around. Yep. Yeah. So okay. it was just like the part of the supervision of my probation that was the most intensive. And I actually was given the option of um, doing urine testing every month for the year randomly. And I said, I'm not going to be able to do that because I already know I'm going to start drinking again. Right? Mm. Like I'm, I'm sitting a week after my DUI, a week after being in jail for the first time in my life. So let me get this right. So you'd walk around <clears throat> and as soon as you had to blow, you would blow and it would say zero, yeah, zero. It's, you'd it's, go straight to the liquor store or straight to the – Absolutely. It's wallet keys phone. And for me, it's wallet keys phone, my little breathalyzer, Right. And then eventually it was wallet, keys, phone, breathalyzer, and in my backpack was a fifth of vodka, right? So, you so did, I had so I had my five things. I like as as soon as I was ready, like as soon as I was able to. Mm. Um, An alcoholic seventy-two hour kid. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it was it was uh, it was really interesting because I I you you can't avoid binge drinking. When you have to be able to from 9 a.m. to 9 like, – pretty much by 9 a.m. every morning, I had to be able to blow zeros, right? And it it's just funny because it was the this weird chaotic descent into chaos of um, – into, into just the most unhealthy behaviors. It was the only thing keeping me from being sick enough to where I knew I needed help was the fact that I had to blow zeros every day because I wasn't – I hadn't become physically dependent. Right. And, and we'll get to that and how scary that was for me. But um, I hadn't become physically dependent because of that. So it was saving me from a hospital trip. But I, I also could only drink in a capacity where for a certain chunk of time and only until about 5 p.m., 6 p.m., I was drinking as much as I possibly could to get blacked out every single day. And I woke up at 3 a.m., 4 a.m., right, feeling crummy every day. But I knew that, you know, I chugged a bunch of water and I knew that by 8 a.m., 8.30, I was going to be able to blow zeros just in case I got pinged. So I had it down to a T, right? And we were just talking about routine. Mm -hmm. And it's like, and this is actually the first time I had, I have ever thought of it this way, but I, I loved the routine. I fell in love with the routine of how I could get that fix every day. And I, I was, it was like a thrill, right? It was like 6 PM comes along 7 PM, 8 PM. I still haven't gotten pinged. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to have to finish this fifth of vodka in like 45 minutes. And wow. And by golly, by golly, I did. (laughs) The the behavioral psychologist to me is going crazy over here. I'm sure. Because the, the reinforcement of, of the drinking behavior by having to wait is insane. Yeah. Like, obviously, you're, you've recognized there was something good about that program because it stopped you from becoming super physically dependent. You yeah. couldn't just drink 24-7. Yeah. So we get that. But mentally... What's happening is is nuts. Your your brain is anticipating, and each hour it's anticipating, and it's yeah. anticipating, and the 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 excitement is starting to grow and grow throughout the day. To where you're right, it's become sort of this challenge. And and you, you, anytime we have to wait in anticipation for yeah. something, like Casey, you know, like when you used to introduce big bands, and you you know, like the longer the crowd has to wait, the more intense it feels in the room, and yeah. it's, everyone's getting excited, and so. So unfortunately, while maybe your physical dependency wasn't growing, that was reinforcing this mental and emotional dependency on alcohol. Like your whole day became focused on when do I get to drink? How long do I have to drink? And the challenge of being able to to get it out of your system and blow zeros in the morning. That that's crazy to it me. It was it was the penultimate irony, right? It was it was right. the it was the the ultimate reward for being good all day and making sure that I was sticking to compliance with my probation was then being non-compliant with my probation, right? It wasn't, (laughs) it wasn't like, Oh, I get to go and, and hang out with my friends or whatever it was like, this didn't limit my freedom at all, but 
the thing I was choosing to do during my probation. And I'm, I'm not even kidding you. It was like every single day during that year of probation, every single day was drinking. And that was my reward for having managed my time well that day. Like, right. It's like this. Yeah. Yeah. It's, like it's I'm learning all these, like I'm, I'm so well routine and so good at managing all these things that so that I can get to the point where I was doing the ultimate chaotic behavior right. of a drinking the blackout yeah, yeah. every single every day. Every single day. Yeah. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. So interesting when, you know, um, and I'll, I'll just say this, even though I don't know that it's true. People that don't really understand how addiction and alcoholism work probably created that program. And they thought, oh, this is a great program. They yeah. have to blow, you know, every day. And it's random, so they won't drink. When in fact somebody who really wants to drink, it yeah. actually reinforced a horrible pattern of binge yeah. drinking. Every, that's so unhealthy. Well, in the beginning you, know? you said it was this this descent into chaos. Yeah. But it was really a controlled descent into chaos. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. I mean, it, it was sort of like, like you it was always trained. say, it's like game on. Oh, you're going to challenge me. Okay, <laughs> let's see what we can do today. That's, this is just interesting. I mean, I say, and obviously you didn't have to do that. You could have gone a different way, but somebody who has that addictive brain who has, you turned it into this challenge, into this game yeah. and then a, re, a reward system. So, you know, we talk about, you know, how mo, most of what we do in life is based on a subtle series of rewards and punishments in our, our yeah. environment. Yeah. And so you had just created this ultimate alcoholics reward yep. by being in having the anticipation. Oh, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. Well, and you were talking about like good times and best times and bad times and mm-hmm. what we learned, right? Like during that year, I, I absolutely believe that I could have learned those same lessons without descending into alcoholism at least i mean i I think i was destined to do that eventually like that was just in my path and that that's part of what i believe about myself but at that time i do and i've talked to a lot of people about this i do think that i could have learned how resilient i can be and how much i can deal with the cards i'm dealt and how adaptable i can be in a different way but again it's that it's the ultimate irony that what i (laughs) what what I learned all those skills through was actually what ultimately completely disallowed me from having any time management skills, having any routine, any organization, all of that stuff. Eventually, right? Once I was off probation, then it was like, okay, I'm free to do this however I want. And I've already decided, like you said, this is like this amazing reward. Now I can do it all the time. Right? Yeah. There's no challenge to it at all. Yeah. And it was like, oh man, that really... It was a diving board for me. Well, of course, because what you did is you spent a whole year training your brain that the best reward is getting blacked out drunk. Yep. And, and of course, we all gravitate towards the things that reward us in life, whatever they are. Yeah. And we develop an appetite for them. And yeah. so it was... And now I can do it for breakfast. And now I can do it any time. <laughs> it, it would be sort of like... You know, like your paycheck. If you're like, oh, I get my paycheck every two weeks. Then what if one day they said, you just push this button, you can have your paycheck anytime you want. You'd be like, oh, I'm if you think getting about paycheck it, all the time. It's yeah. an alcoholic version of Pavlov's theory. It, it, that's Absolutely. exactly what we're talking Absolutely. about. Yeah. It's behavioral reinforcement. It's yep. this association. Um, and, and the behavioral psychologists listening are like going, holy cow. You're, listen, spent, you're oh, listening I'm to sorry. Sam's story. Uh, we're going to find out when his reward becomes a punishment. Stick around. It's right here on KSL. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. Our guest today is Sam Willerman, uh, who's got just this fascinating story of kind of how, uh, your descent into alcoholism began. Mm-hmm. Uh, we left, we last left you and you were talking about how this was kind of the alcoholic version of Pavlov's theory. Yeah. Anytime that the, your, your breathalyzer went off and you blew zero, zero, it was game on. Yeah. It, and the funny thought that I'm having is like that, that breathalyzer ping, most people would think like, oh, and they'd roll their eyes. It's like, oh man, I was so excited yeah. because that meant I've cleared the, the, I've finished the maze, right? And yeah. I found the cocaine reward, right? Like I, 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 and, and ultimately what it turned into was like, I spent a whole year in, if, you know, in, in reference to like Pavlov's theory, I spent a whole year as, the dog salivating to the bell, right? And waiting and waiting and waiting and trying to play to the master, right? And then all of a sudden, 
Master's gone, control's gone, the maze is clear, and there's just a whole pile of food. I can do whatever I want. Right. And like it, it set, it teed me up so perfectly to so quickly become just a, a rabid alcoholic, making drinks so that I woke up at 3 a.m. with the shakes and I could solve that. And I, and I ended up working at a treatment center when I graduated school. And I'll, I'll provide some context for that. But it, it turned me into the sickest person I could possibly have been at that point so quickly, way, way more quickly than I think it would have happened without that year of control. Well, I mean, the, Pav, the Pavlovian response is what it's called. It definitely, that ping became completely synonymous with the, the reward of drinking. Yep. And so it was a happy or supposedly like you got excited and, yeah. and, and everything. And I Best think part of my day. all your dopamine, all your serotonin, everything was flowing. You were ready to go. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. People who are listening, you ought to think about this. What's your ping? Like we've oh, all yeah. got them. You know, we've oh, yeah. got them. It could be a place. It could be a time of day. It could be a situation. It could be whatever, but we we get we get. Um, it could be your Nintendo switching on. It could be, hey, welcome to Fizz. What's your order? I mean, it could it, be yeah. all of those things. <laughs> you know, you said something that was interesting because you go, that was the best part of my day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, best and, part and, of my day was blowing into a breathalyzer in in my how in my house that I hadn't left. I'm 22 years old. Living in Colorado, living beautiful. In Colorado, and your best part of the day all is my blowing. Are, in- all my lights are off. All my blinds are closed. I've been in my house for 72 hours straight. And the best part of my day was getting that buzz yeah. and making my first drink. That's day. how maddening the disease is. That, that's the a, best part. Right. And look at all, I mean, obviously, all the things that that, that uh, Pavlovian association uh robbed you from like you're 22 years old you're yeah. single you're living in one of the most beautiful states yeah. you know not as good as utah but it's pretty good and then uh you got the skiing and you got the outdoors and i'm pretty sure they have girls there and i, I mean there's all these things you could have been doing but you're sitting in there like a rat in the cage waiting for the bell to go off so you can drink well what if i'm out on this beautiful hike and i get my ping and yeah. that now it takes me an hour to get back to my car that's an hour. But you solved man, that with a, your 72-hour kit, right? You had your backpack, so. Yeah, well, and that's <laughs> and that man, it's it's so crazy. Like I think about how effective I was at maintaining that lifestyle, right? And they you hear it all the time. It's like if you put a fraction of the energy into the things that help you stay sober and healthy as you did to satisfying your addiction and creating a world around your addictive behaviors, you will be a successful person in recovery. Oh, definitely. You hear that all the time, right? Sure. And for me, it's the ultimate like you think about for 365 days straight at 22 years old, I became a perfect time manager. I was able to – I was always in good communication with my probation officer, right? I was – I was, and I was managing school well and my, my friends didn't wonder where I was. I was so good at manipulating the whole situation so that – I could get that reward when I blew zeros. I was able to start drinking that day. And this, those skills are time management, communication, organization, right? Like routine, all that stuff. All of those things are what helped me stay sober today. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're all great skills. They're mm-hmm. they're they're definitely highly associated with success. Yeah. It's just sort of like you were using them. For yeah. evil. For evil, not good, right? Yeah. yeah. So how does it go from drinking every day for 365 to graduation? Where do you go there, Sam? Where do you go after that? Well, uh, rent sucks. So uh, my parents were here in Utah still, and I said, all right, I'll go live with them and figure it out. So uh, I was working at the restaurant I, I worked at during high school and um, – looking for jobs, right? Trying to extend this period of, I'm finally off probation. I have a bachelor's degree. I kind of want to live in this period of time where I have all of the freedom in the world right now, right? And really what it was is like the the alcoholic demons inside of me trying to convince me that, that moving into a career and finding a different job and moving out of your parents' house that all creates constraint in your life that won't allow you to drink as much, right? And that's really what it that that's what it was. But, so you had kind of found this in between state where yeah. you could be supported. It yep. looked like you were doing good things, yeah. but really 
you were just you giving were yourself the situation. Absolutely. Yeah. And and what's where did I learn to do that best? While I was on probation, managing the facade of having sure. everything together and, and managing my time well and, and all this stuff. And there are certain rewards that you that happened there too because you did graduate from college and you were able to Yes. You yeah. know, you probably we're on good terms with your PO and, yeah. you know, like all those kinds of things. So you probably came back to Utah with the attitude of, I really can do it all. I am the best functional alcoholic that I've, uh, that I could ever imagine. I can live my whole life this way. I can just live forever like this. I knew that I was an alcoholic. Like this was, this was more than a year before I got sober. I had already admitted to myself, like, I know that I will drink every day until I die. But I can manage it so well that I might as well. And I was – I think that what I really was going through was I was I was suicidal and hopeless. Like I didn't have any – I didn't feel like there was any reason that I should continue living. But I wasn't brave enough to kill myself. Right? So I'll just dissociate from reality every day, forever. I'll just never live as a sober person because when I'm sober, I, I hate I hate what my life looks like. But now you've got some accountability because you're living back with your parents. And so you've got other eyes on you. Does that make it tougher? No. I I was very effective at – well, I was very effective at hiding it. I think that they knew that like something was going on. How aware were they about the probation and the DUI? Oh, yeah, they were that? fully they, involved. Okay. Yeah, my, my, my parents are – I'm always most honest with them when – it all hits the fan and I need them. And then I'm never honest with them, right? Mm. At least until I got sober, right? It was like, yeah. they always knew when I came when to you them had for to help. be honest. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Save me now and then I'll lie to you about all this other stuff, right? Well, that I don't feel like that my ego tells me I can handle on my own. But when I need you, then I'll be honest enough that you're willing to help me. But you also just completed the course that took 365 days. Yeah. So they see that and they go, yeah. well, he must be doing okay. I mean, yeah. he passed they were the- super proud of me. I graduated college, right? And I'm right. at yeah. 22 when I'm supposed to have graduated college. Yeah, right I on finished time. probation. Yeah. And I've learned this invaluable lesson by staying sober for a whole year, right? Because they had no idea while I was on probation that I would, any of that was happening, that I, I want to... I want to live this life and I want to help people find recovery and all this stuff, right? Why do you think you were drawn towards recovery? Because I understand. I'm sick. Yeah. <laughs> okay, thank you. That smile was easy. Yeah, right to it. Dude, yeah. it, it, is, it is a point of shame for me, at least it was for a long time, that like, man, that's the thing I chose to do. Casey, he's been doing that insight stuff we were talking about. Yeah, right. There you go. Yeah. So, you, so you, you, you get a job at a recovery center? Yeah. Uh, Valley Behavioral Health has uh, a 99-bed residential campus. And man, was I a good employee. I mean, like, seriously, I was super dedicated, really, really effective at getting things done. Um, you know, I would, I would, I was in a leadership position and, and I was um, helping to manage one of the, the houses there. And uh, I had 30 beds that I was pretty much solely managing the, the case management and administrative stuff for and helping to to cater the clinical team to them and all that stuff. And uh, it was it was so – it was such a chaotic, high, fast-paced job and it was the only thing that could really – that really stimulated me enough that I was okay with not drinking – before or during work, right? Because I was like sick at work. I mean, I would like, I would uh, observe UAs and there were these little UA papers we needed to sign. And like, I, I was like shaking signing these papers. Like I was, I had become very physically dependent by that point, um, right around October, November of 2020, no, 2019. So this was in the same calendar year that I had graduated. So like literally in, in three or four months, I went from having no signs of physical dependency to like three hours after my last drink, even when I would probably still blow 0.2 or higher, I was getting shaky. Yeah. 22 years old. And I had only been, I'd only really been alcoholically drinking for two years at that point. So what, what did it look like once the, the probation was over? How much were you drinking? Um, I was drinking, uh, Four handles of vodka a week, so uh, roughly seventy percent of of a handle every day, eighty percent of a handle every day. Wow. Yeah. Okay. 
and what time of day did that start? Now the rules are gone, so. Yeah, so it was like um, I was pretty much at the beck and call of I replaced one one master in my probation system with uh, the other, which was the physical dependency. And it was pretty much like, and at that point it was like I, the first time I tried to stop when I first got the job at Valley, I was like, all right, it's time. I'm going to stop drinking because I'm working at a treatment center now. And I had the withdrawal symptoms for the first time. And I was like, all right, I'll just, again, I resolved to, I'll just live the rest of my life drinking because I, this is terrifying and I think I'm going to die. But see, that's where the reward becomes a punishment. Before, yes. Earlier, yeah. it was like, I get to do this. Yeah. Now your body's saying, hey, we need to we do this. To if do we this. don't, yeah. we're going to get physically ill. Well, and I think that alcohol was a, a particularly enticing, manipulative um, energy in my life. Because once I was close enough to it, that it could turn the tables and kind of show its true size and stature and power over me. It was very like at first it was like you I'm just here for you and you get to kind of control the terms here and all and then like so quickly it was like it revealed itself to me and it's like you actually have no power in this situation. You you don't get to control any of this stuff. I get to I control when you engage with me. And it was like the tides turned in what was the most abusive relationship I had ever been in in my life. You became its slave. Yep. And we're going to find out how that all ends and how he finds himself in recovery. You're listening to Project Recovery right here on KSL. Welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That is Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist. Our guest today is Sam Wellerman. Uh, He just revealed on the podcast. Wellman. Wellman. Weller sounds, I don't know, he's Wellman. But he's weller now because he's, he's sober. That's like that. That's some gooder. Good that's, save, good that's save, some Casey. Good English, there, buddy. Yeah. Gosh, I love you guys. So uh, you were talking about how you just found out that uh, you were a slave to alcohol. Yeah. And uh, this relationship had turned on you, and you had no choice in the matter. Yeah, and uh, I was I was working at a treatment center, and and again, it was it was seems to be the theme of the day that my routine was. Set in stone. It was, I did the exact same thing week in, week out, and it all centered around how can I manage the facade that I have, you know, things together, and how can I drink? Those are really the only two priorities that I had. And Sam Jackson, who's in recovery, uh, Samuel Jackson, he says, things work until they don't. And I guess in your alcoholism, things started not to work? Yeah, so... um there was uh, back back then. There was this thing, coronavirus. Oh yeah, oh, yeah back yeah. in the COVID day, nineteen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. in that back in nineteen, before right. the twenty, before the roaring twenties. Yeah, 20s. before the twenty. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and it was uh, it was like February, March of twenty twenty, and my mom comes back with like three thousand dollars worth of Costco stuff to throw into a closet. So in the she basement. bought all the toilet paper. She yeah, yeah. she that okay. The, and and she'll listen to this and like I hope that all of our neighbors know now it's like when well, you went you to go. the Costco that everybody goes to and it was she was she's the reason why those little signs are up it's like please only take one yeah so she came home with an absurd amount of groceries and we're all just laughing at her right and like little did we know right she she was she was listening to the right sources about how critical and serious this thing was going to get what like regardless of of what you believe about the virus itself it's like it made a, a substantial impact culturally oh, socially. i was that guy who was like ah what are we doing next yeah. week it'll be yeah, over yeah, yeah. <laughs> right it was hard to believe that like something that in today's modern world of medicine that like there was going to be some sort of medical thing that was going to impact the entire globe right right and and uh and so February, March of, of 2020, that starts to happen. I'm living in their basement. Eventually, she says, okay, I'm sleeping in this room. Reed, my dad, you sleep in, in our room. And two weeks, we're not going to see each other. We're not going to go out. We're not going to work. We're just going to quarantine so that we're safe to be together. And then we're shutting in and we're done. And he worked at Fidelity, who um, uh, I think her name is Abby Johnson, the CEO of Fidelity. She... Um, was super duper supportive of how can we equip our employees to handle this effectively, 
great business decision because they've done incredibly well over the last couple of years because they they equipped all of their their major business infrastructure with the ability to work from home before anybody else could. So they got ahead of the curve. And so my dad had a work from home office and everybody on his team was able to work from home. And I'm in the basement working at a treatment center that serves the the Medicaid population coming right from jail, right off the street. And, and I refused to stop working there because I loved it. I loved it. And, uh, and so I, I got a mini fridge in the basement and a microwave and set myself up. And three weeks later, uh, the girl that I had met at work who um, I had started dating, um, her roommate went to live with uh, her partner. And, um, and so I said, hey, like, can I just come stay with you while this, you know, pandemic just, just to tide me over, right? Just a couple weeks and then – It'll be over by then. Parents won't be quarantining and I'll yeah. feel more comfortable being in the house, right? And and moved in with her and uh, a month later, she came home from a hike and she didn't know anything about my alcoholism. I moved in with her and like very quickly adapted my alcoholism to like to be in her home, in her life, on, on her schedule because I – that's the story of my alcoholism. I was going to say, it's like your superpower. Like yeah. whatever the environment's going on, yeah, yeah, yeah. you were able to hone in quickly, yeah. adapt quickly. The only thing that wasn't going away was- So that you could drink. Was that I was going to be able to drink, right? right? Um, so she comes home from a hike and at this point it's it's April and we're in the heart of the, I mean, it's like, it's like full shutdown, like COVID is the thing. There were earthquakes and oh, that's oh, right. Yeah, yeah, it was a oh yeah. And I'm, I'm like, we have tons of staff that that leave and quit and don't want to deal with it. And so I'm there with thirty adult men who are trying to get sober and coming out of the criminal justice system and coming off the streets and um, that all of this is happening at once and like. My God, did did my work get incredibly stressful, right? And it it just brought me to this this tipping point, I think. And I don't know whether it was like uh, a spiritual moment or whatever it was, but my body just rejected it. Rejected the alcohol, and it said, "We're not we're not going to try to." to deal with this anymore and I got really bad like really really bad alcohol poisoning and she came home to me covered in urine covered in sweat you know my blood pressure was tanked my pulse was tanked like I was dying right and she called 911 and uh, uh, Sigourney Weaver in her predator suit came into my house (laughs) because it was COVID (laughs) and I'm like and I'm like blacked out drunk <laughs> and getting stirred sternum rubbed by like by Trying like bring these you back space yeah. these astronauts right and it was like <laughs> and like flashing in and out and all of a sudden um it felt like two minutes but it was like the first 30 seconds was the the paramedics and then the next like 45 seconds was my mom pulling me off the floor and then the next minute and 15 seconds was the nurse bringing me a sheet of paper in, I think I was in LDS hospital, maybe St. Mark's bringing me a sheet of paper that said, here's resources for you. Um, your, your blood alcohol was a 0.45. Whoa. Wow. That was six hours after I'd taken my last drink too. A lot of people die at 0.3. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. That's dangerous. Um, yeah. And, and, uh, and so I broke down and I said, like, yeah, like I, I need help. And um, I'm really grateful for my mom. She she called the nurse and she said, like, please just do uh, on your blood draw, like do a, an alcohol run an ETOH. And if if not for that, it wouldn't have – it would have been like maybe he has COVID, maybe he just has the flu, whatever. And I, I know that I would have found a way. Like I always did. So mom had an intuition. Yeah. Well, and she she had found like some empty bottles in my room a couple months prior, and I had like told them I was getting sober and did for like three weeks, and um, 
you know, they, they had kind of become aware, but then I immediately got back into the facade of, I convinced them that like I was going to be sober and it was that easy for me. I just, you know, like every alcoholic does, he just decides one day he's going to be sober and it's just that easy. Right. But the three weeks Mm -hmm. after I had, I had stopped drinking. But you saw a crack in the dam. I'm pretty sure that's probably why you moved in with your girlfriend. Yeah, absolutely. You know what yeah. I mean? It, and that's really what it was, right? Yeah. It was like, again, it was like They're I on manipulate the yeah. situation and the details of what's going on right now to create a story around why am I moving out of my parents' house? Well, really, it's because my girlfriend has no idea and my parents might. Right? And and it was the crack in the dam. It's hard, it's hard to ultimately really fool a mom. Because moms That's have that intuition, said, like, right? They never knew. They never knew. And then I was like, well, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. I'm sure. So after you get your blood drawn and they tell you that you're 0.4 something, uh, do you end up going into a recovery center? Uh, I go home, uh, detoxing at home, cold turkey. Uh, I start to, I start to, you know, do the thing where you try to cold turkey at home and you almost die there, right? right? And I'm – and – I'm alone. Nobody's observing me because of COVID. You're just down in the basement. Down in the basement. Ah. So I walk upstairs with my mask on and I say, I need to go to a hospital or I'm going to die. And I FaceTime my girlfriend. I told her I'm an alcoholic. This is whatever. It was just this wave of like, the only way I get through this right now in this circumstance, like for the first time I felt like I am not going to be able to outsmart these circumstances. And I just walked upstairs and I said, I need to go to the hospital. Got into uni that day. Randy Weaver got my mom in touch with uh, Jake Forsyth, who mm-hmm. owns uh, Willow Tree, Pleasant Grove. Um, and I was like, great, I'm going on vacation. This is awesome. And I, <laughs> I, it just took me a while. I quit my job. I tried to quit my job. Um, ended up on the, the doorstep of, of Willow Tree. And I, um, I called the... Um, clinical director of residential programs at Valley Behavioral Health. Her name is Michelle. Um, and she is one of the most incredible people I've ever met. She said, what's going on? You don't have to tell me if you don't want to, but what's going on? And I told her and I was crying and, um, she said, well, you're an idiot. (laughs) And I chuckled through my tears and she said, you don't need to quit. Um, we'll give you a leave of absence. I'll write it up. I'll get it all done for you. This is what we'll need from you. And this, this job will be waiting for you just in case you're, you're going to come out the other end of, of this treatment stay different. Right. But like, just in case let's not, isn't it right. great that there are people like that out yes. there? I mean, I just got chills. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's just people like that. You and can't. I had been lying to her face sure, and my supervisor's face for months. Yeah given a promotion and a raise and all this stuff, like more responsibility. And he's, he's our star guy. This is, this is great. He's changing lives. He's, he's incredible. And I'm in the darkest part of my life through that whole thing. And they still had the grace to say, we still want you back. We still believe in who you are. We still believe that there's, there's value in you coming back here and we want to be able to support you. And, um, Went to treatment for 42 days, moved back in with my girlfriend, called my old boss, and she said, um, we've got a, a recovery management. It's like an outpatient case management, activities management uh, position. We want to move you into that, take you out of the residential space so that you're not in the chaos of it. And I was like, great. And I worked there for um, probably about seven or eight months. Um and then I got recruited by Highland Ridge Hospital to do care coordination and discharge planning there. Um, and I was still living with my my girlfriend, and we uh, we were together for up until about two and a half months ago. Um, we had two dogs together. One was mine. One was hers. Um, moved from Highland Ridge Hospital to uh, Fit to Recover during that time, and. Uh, and so to briefly tell the story of how I found Fit to Recover, I was five months sober, no sponsor, no program, no real sanity, right? No sponsor, no program. Like I'm, just, I'm like my knuckles are still white from that period of time, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, 
And my friend Bailey, who I had met in uh, the group that we were zooming into while I was in treatment, he was teaching yoga at FTR. And four weeks in a row, I told him I was going to go. And four weeks in a row, I bailed. Finally, he said, I paid $5. I put your name on the list. You're going to show up. And I did. And I, every single Sunday for the next seven months straight, I did not miss a yoga ever, ever. I came in and found FTR and immediately it was, this is where my community is. And I want to be here as much as possible. And part of that is because of the way FTR was. And part of it was that I, I wasn't involved in AA and I wasn't involved in really anything at that, at that time. Right. Um, and I, I'm always very grateful. Um, and I've told Bailey's mom this, that he, uh, he kind of pigeonholed me into finding what is, is, has been the most impactful thing in my recovery and in my life, which is fit to recover. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. And you're now doing a podcast. Now I do a podcast. Yeah. It's uh, at, at FDR. We have four pillars. We have fitness, which is kind of the, the central pillar of what we do. And then we have nutrition uh, and our food to recover program. We also have our creative arts program um, and we do service. We do service outreach projects and we have service opportunities at the gym. Um, and really what that comes from is Ian Acker, our founder, who was on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. He, he just basically looked at what do I like doing and how can, I, how can I serve this community and find purpose in my own life? Well, those were the four pillars he landed on. So my brain is always working when I'm driving. And one day it just kind of came to me. I'd been talking about doing a podcast for a little bit. And it came up with the name Pillar Talk, a play on <laughs> Pillow oh, Talk, like talk right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I called Ian and I said, well, now I have to do the podcast. I came up with a good enough name. You that got I have such to a commit. great name. You yeah. can't not do it. And that, that week, uh, I talked to Randy Burton, who's our outreach coordinator and our membership coordinator. And I said, you want to co-host with me? And he said, yeah. And we ran our, our test run that week. And um, a couple weeks later, we published those three weeks of podcasts. And we haven't missed a Friday except for, I think, Thanksgiving um, we haven't missed a Friday since. We're coming up on 16, 17 episodes. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And is it is the format the two of you talking about so different I things? So I do or? interviews with uh, different guests, and mm-hmm. that's where we kind of get the sustainability of the podcast because um, mm-hmm. you can only listen to me and Randy Banter for so long. I'm sure you guys are aware of that, right? <laughs> no, we <laughs> don't know anything yeah. about that. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and I – I, so we want to bring people on like uh, today we're having one of our members uh, moms is coming on to kind of share the perspective of what it's like to be uh, a mother of someone who is in and out of recovery and when to support and when to give tough love. And uh, she, it's going to be a has, good episode. Yeah, boundaries. So, yeah. And how to set boundaries. But then also she just a couple months ago started coming to FTR and what that experience has been like for her and all of that. So, well, it sounds like FTR is a great place to find the community and the opposite of addiction isn't abstinence. It's a connection and yeah. you can get that connection at FTR. Absolutely. Dr. Matt, what are your thoughts on today's episode? Because I, I've been fascinated Oh, it's been a really fun episode. Thank you so much, yeah. Sam, for coming on. I mean, I kind of, you know, this is the best five bucks spent I've ever heard of. Right. You know, that uh, Bailey spent five bucks and got you yeah. to go there. But I, I'm sort of joking about it. I'm sort of not. It's like, you know, it, it, it's the getting yourself to do something. And I hear so many times people uh, obviously frustrated with access. You know, it's too expensive. We can't go play. It's like, you know what? There are options out there if you're willing to go. And if you know somebody who needs to go, throw your five bucks down and guilt them into getting there because look at what it's done for you. So I, I think yeah. that's I, – I, I really appreciate you sharing your story. And I hope there's somebody else out there listening with kind of that idea like yeah. I, just, I just need a little push. I can do it. And, and for those who might, might be white-knuckling it and, and might be wondering, you know, it's just impossible for me to connect with those – just show up, just show up like I, to everybody that is trying to find sobriety and trying to live a healthy life, just show up to places like fit to recover, to places like USARA, to, to a 12 step, to 12 step, right? Go to, go to saltlakeaa.org like that. Like there are places where if you just show up, I promise you our only goal is to help you feel safe and help you feel welcome. And we're not there to, to, fix you and we're not there to preach to you. 
we were met with open arms. That's how we got healthy. So now we turn and we give open arms to those who are trying to find it. Just show up. I love that. And we want to thanks everybody. Thank, say thanks to everybody who showed up today yeah. for the podcast. Heck yeah. And thank you, Dr. Matt. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Sam. Uh, and thank you to knowyourscript.org. Without them, we wouldn't be able to do this podcast weekly. Don't forget, Project Recovery is what, Dr. Matt? It's a KSL podcast. Yeah. of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts.